The reading tonight's from uh, Judges, chapter 13, which is on page 256 of the Blue Bibles. It's Judges, chapter 13. Page 256. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you don't eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant and have a son, whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You'll become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We'd like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah didn't realize it, that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we, we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame, 
Seeing this, Manor and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We've seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahani Dan, between Zorah and Eshtol. This is God's word. Thank you, Andy. Do keep um, a Bible open to Judges chapter 13. If taking notes is helpful for you, um, please feel free to do that, but we all need the Lord's help as we come to the scriptures, Um, so let me pray um, for his help. Paul says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the scriptures, Old Testament and New And we ask, as we look at this chapter in Judges, that they would indeed encourage us and provide us with hope as we look at this wonderful story, this great message of hope and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know it's March, but for me this week has felt a lot like Christmas. I don't know about you. For me, it's felt a lot like Christmas. It began... Last weekend, with some time with family, it continued at church, some of the youngsters in their Christmas jumpers, continued with presents on Tuesday, and Wednesday morning, that glorious covering of snow as we woke up. It culminates this evening, as we look at Judges 13. Did you notice the Christmas links as Andy read for us? An angel of the Lord appearing to a woman, you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. The same angel appearing to the woman's husband, providing confirmation and reassurance that all is going to be okay. This unlikely and miraculous birth. This baby who's going to play a role in saving and delivering Israel. Happy Christmas. It's a, it's a message of great joy. It's a message of good news. A message of great hope for the people of God as the Lord graciously provides them with a deliverer to deal with the Philistines. That's what happens in these verses. It's a message of great hope, especially in contrast with the hopeless situation at the start, the desperate situation that we see at the start of the passage. Verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil. In the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if you've not been with us, this might come as a bit of a shock. But for those of us who have been with us this term, it's anything but a surprise, is it? It's a verse that we've come to know well through Judges. It's a verse that we've come accustomed to. It's a verse that we're probably expecting to read. And there it is, right at the start. Remember, this book contains a cycle that we go round 
six times. And this is the sixth and final time around the cycle. And yet there is something incredibly striking about this verse. Not striking for what it does say, but incredibly striking for what it doesn't say. Back in week three of this series, as we looked at the first and second of the cycles, I say that one thing, I said that one thing would be helpful to do is to try and keep an eye out to see whether the pattern stays the same or whether it changes. Because the book of Judges has a clear structure. Again, the Israelites did evil in, in the eyes of the Lord time and time again. And so if there's a, a change, if there's a shift in the pattern, well, it stands out. And here we have a massive change. To help us sit, I'm going to read some verses from some of the other cycles, beginning back in chapter 3. Do flick back with me if you want to, or listen if that's um, easier. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Othniel cycle. Remember, this was the first that we saw back in January. 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord's. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject to for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Let's flip forward to verse 12 of chapter 3, the Ehud cycle. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminites. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Deborah slash Barak cycle. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth, Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Do you see the pattern? It's very clear, isn't it? Israel do evil. The Lord hands them over. The Israelites cry out for help. It's the same with the Gideon cycle, chapter 6. It's the same with the Jephthah cycle, chapter 10. But what about the Samson cycle? Well, back in chapter 13, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. But that's not what it says. We've got the Israelites doing evil. We've got the Lord handing them over. But we've not got step three. Why not? I think the indication is that by this point in the book, things have got so bad in Israel that they are happy with the Philistines. Content with the Philistines ruling over them. Flick forward with me to chapter 15. This is, I think, the last bit of flicking forward. Lord willing, we'll try and cover chapters 14 to 16 next week. Um, but sneaky peek at chapter 15 and verse 11. 
just before I read it. Chapter 15, lots of fighting between Samson and the Philistines. And at one point, the Philistines um, go to Israel, and they go to the Israelites um, in order to take Samson prisoner. And verse 11, then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? Samson is supposed to be the judge. Samson is supposed to be the one who defeats the Philistines as God's enemies. But what happens when he does that? The Israelites say, what are you doing? They complain to him. Why are you upsetting the enemy? Enemy, Don't upset the apple carts. Do you realize what you're doing, Samson? In fact, one of the striking things about this verse is that in chapters 14 to 16, Samson does all the fighting by himself. The Israelites, they just don't seem to want to help him. They're just not there. But then they're happy to send 3,000 to bind Samson up to hand him over to the enemy. The indication, as I say, is that by this point in the story, Israel don't care about being ruled by their enemies. They seem content with the Philistines. Remember, this book does contain six cycles, but it's not the case that at the end of each cycle, Israel is sort of back in the same moral position. They're getting worse, spiraling downhill, and out of control. Israel become worse in the book. The indication, I think, is that by chapter 13, they've become so canonized, they've become so compromised, they've become so much like the world that they live in, they've adopted the values and the idols of the Philistine nation so much that they don't want to cry out to the lords. They display little discomfort, little desire of actually wanting to be delivered. For them, just coexistence with the Philistines is normal. Normal life. And so you see the silence at the start of chapter 13. It's actually not that silent at all. It speaks volumes. Incredibly deafening. A desperate situation for the Israelites. And yet remember that the danger of Canaanization isn't just a danger for God's people back then. It's a danger for God's people today. Constant temptation for the church to want to to blend in to society, to adopt the values of society, to be more accepted by society. The constant temptation for every single individual Christian to assimilate, to blend in, to think and act like the world's. The constant temptation for us to share the same ambitions and values that our non-Christian friends and family have. The question is, are we giving in to that temptation, like Israel? Are we, for example, idolizing relationships in the way that the world does, thinking that we can only be satisfied if we're with someone? Are we being distinctive with how we interact on social media, the kinds of things that we're sharing? Or do we just share and then laugh at the same things that a group of non-Christians would share and laugh at? We need to remember that we're called to be different. We've been called to say no to sin and yes to godliness in the world, yes, but not of it. 
And remember, we're to do this together. And so therefore, let's gently, gently challenge and correct one another where we're giving in to this temptation. Gently challenge a brother or a sister that you see blending in and being like the world so that we don't go down the path of canonization like Israel do here. That's verse 1. Don't worry, we'll speed up a little bit. Because the wonderful news is that God doesn't abandon his people in a desperate situation. I love the grace of God in this book, particularly in this chapter. His people are getting worse. They don't see the danger they're in. They're not even picking up the phone to him. They don't want to be delivered. They don't desire to be delivered. They don't deserve to be delivered. And yet, our God is a God of wonderful grace at work through and for his flawed people time and time again in this book. And it comes again in this story to a desperate situation a promised saviour. Verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. It's a desperate situation for the nation of Israel. It's a desperate situation and painful situation for this family. And yet, as God does time and time again throughout the Bible, he uses a barren woman to bring about the birth of someone incredibly important. To bring about another judge, this judge who is going to take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines, a promised saviour. But we're all very cynical, aren't we? After all, multiple judges have come before this child. God has raised up many judges throughout this book, and they're just not making much of a difference. As I say, Israel are not becoming less sinful, they're becoming more sinful. The judges themselves are getting worse and worse in their character. And now we have one from the tribe of Dan. Remember chapters 1 and 2, the worst tribe, spiritually speaking? How is this person going to help Israel? But these verses do contain a message of great hope, a message of great joy for this family, yes, but also for the nation. You see, as we've made our way through the book of Judges, what has happened is we've built up this picture of the kind of ruler, the kind of judge that we do need, probably more accurately, the kind of judge that we don't need. In fact, that seems to be one of the main purposes of the book, to show us the kind of person that a sinful and wayward people need. Think about it. We need one like Othniel, one who can outfight the enemy. We need one like Ehud, who can surprise the enemy. We need one unlike Barak, who will willingly risk their life. We need one like unlike Gideon, who will obey God rather than test him. We need one unlike Abimelech and Jephthah, who won't slaughter thousands of his own people. But here's the thing. We don't 
just need a judge who can save them from their enemies. We need one who can save them from themselves. Two problems for Israel in verse 1. The Philistines, that's just one of the problems. The second is themselves. The problem that is common to all humankind. The problem of our own sin. And the fact that we, however much try, we just cannot stop ourselves from doing it. The people of Israel, on top of everything that we've seen so far, well, they need someone who can keep them from tolerating sin. The people of Israel need a saviour who is not like them. One who is pure and holy. And that is where the hope of this passage comes in. That is where Samson comes in. Because Samson isn't just going to be any old son. He's not just going to be any old kind of judge. He's going to be a Nazarite. The word Nazarite means one who is separated. One who is consecrated to God. So earlier on in the Bible, Numbers chapter 6, read it when you get home, we're told that people could make a temporary and voluntary vow of becoming dedicated to the Lord. Three stipulations. Number one, diet. During their vow, a Nazarite was to abstain from wine and other fermented drinks. They weren't allowed to eat grapes, raisins. The second was to do with hair. During their vow, a Nazarite wasn't allowed to cut their hair. And the third was to do with corpses. During their vow, a Nazarite wasn't allowed to go near a dead body. The point is that they were dedicating themselves to the Lord, setting themselves apart to be consecrated. Now, there are a few differences in Judges 13. It isn't voluntary. Samson's chosen. It's not temporary. It begins with the moment that he's conceived. That's why his mother isn't allowed to drink wine or other fermented drink. But the whole point is that this passage is of great hope to Israel because Samson is going to be set apart from the people. He is going to be consecrated. He is not going to be like the people. He's going to be pure and holy. And that's the point that's emphasized throughout the chapter. You probably noticed it come up multiple times. The woman goes to her husband, passes on the news. um, The pregnancy test is positive. They're going to have a baby. But she also passes on the information of the fact that her diet is now changing, not to do with cravings, but no more wine or other fermented drink for me because our son is going to be a Nazarite. Manoel wants further clarifications. He wants a few parenting lessons, and so he prays to the Lord. God answers, and eventually his wife gets Manoah, and he asks the angel, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? And the angel answers, verse 13, let's look at it. Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, or eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Now, Manoah's learned nothing new, basically. Right? He, he prays, he wants extra parenting lessons, what are we to do? And he gets told exactly the same thing again and again. But I think that's the point. Three times we've been told that this boy is going to be a Nazarite. This child is set apart from the people. He's been chosen to be pure and holy. A promised saviour. Manoah responds to the news by offering the angel a meal. The angel declines 
um, but says that if they want to prepare a burnt offering, then do it to the Lord. After all, he is the one who is providing this child. And that is what they do. The flame goes up. But Manoah is concerned. He thinks, we're going to die. We've seen God's. His wife, though, um, she is the model character in the passage. Though unnamed, though we don't really know much about her, she's the model. She uses logic and common sense to correct him. Verse 23, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. We can't die, Manoah. After all the sacrifice, you've seen it. It's been accepted. The fire going up is a sign of acceptance. We can't die, Manoah. The Lord has made promises to us. He's declared to us the future, which depends on us staying alive. We can't die. And so nine or so months later, the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. This name, Samson, is not necessarily a good name for an Israelite family. It means something like little son. Um, and most of the commentators, most of the boffins, say that um, given that the son was worshipped by the Canaanites, further evidence that Israel was compromising. I'm choosing baby names as a sign of them worshipping these Canaanite gods. And yet, Samson grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him when he was in Mahanathan, between Zorah and Eshtel. This is wonderful for the family, of course. But remember, it's more about more than just this one family. It's about the nation. This is the promised saviour. Now, as I say, next week, we're going to try and get through 14 to 16, and we'll see how things are going. Um, if you get a chance this week, as it's such a long section, it'll probably be beneficial for you to read it ahead of time. Have these things in your mind as you do. Think about how is Samson's vow going. Think about how is salvation from the Philistines going. Clue, not good on either of them. But for today, forget that, for today, we're meant to be left with great hope. Great expectations of this son. Here is the one born into a nation that is compromised. A nation who are not crying out to God. And here is a son who is set apart and different. Here is a son who is going to be pure and holy. Here is the judge that they need. One who is not like the people. He can save them from the Philistines, but he can also save them from themselves. A desperate situation, a promised saviour. And yet, as we've seen time and time again throughout this series, these verses again emphasise that the real hero of the story is the Lord himself. Remember, these people are not crying out. They don't deserve to be delivered, they don't desire to be delivered. And yet, what does the Lord do? Provide a deliverer. Remember, this woman is childless, unable to give birth. And yet it is to her that the Lord promises this child. It is the Lord who does it. 
Remember the angel, if you're going to prepare an offering, if you're going to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. The hero is the Lord's. I said earlier, the purpose of these verses is to show us how the Lord graciously provides Israel with the deliverer. The Lord graciously provides Israel with the deliverer to deal with the Philistines. And of course, the even more wonderful news for us is that this birth, this narrative, points us forward to the most special of births. It's a long narrative. It's the longest one about the deliverer before they turn up on the scene. And yet, it is about the Lord providing and pointing us forwards to the Lord Jesus. This term we've seen as we've studied these judges, that we're to let them point us forward to the Lord Jesus. Now, for most of them, it's been a case of seeing how wonderful it is that Jesus is not like the judges. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is not like Jephthah? I am. Previous judges. For most of them, it's a case of that. Look at the judges and think, I am so grateful that our Savior is not like them. But for a couple of the judges, it's a case of seeing how wonderful it is that Jesus is like them. And I think it's the case with this story. The parallels to the Christmas story are so very clear. This birth points us forward to the most special of all births, an angel appearing to a woman. You're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. A son who will be separated and consecrated. A son who will be perfectly pure and holy and blameless at every single moment of his life. Never trace nor stain of sin as we've just been singing. And a son who therefore really can deliver and save his people from their sin. From the enemy Satan, but also from the power and presence of sin. And so therefore this week, as and when we're let down by people because of their character, please go back to Judges 13. Let the birth of Samson cause you to delight more in the one who is pure and blameless. This week, as and when we mess up, let the birth of Samson in Judges 13 cause you to delight in the gracious God who has sent his son to save you. It's not Christmas today. But these verses should cause us to feel like we do at Christmas. Joyful and hopeful because the Saviour has been born. So happy Christmas. A few moments of silence to gather our thoughts and respond individually to the Lord's in prayer.
Our Father, we praise you so much for your grace and your mercy to your compromised people. Thank you that we can see that in the birth of Samson. Help us to delight more in your gracious character. And help us, we pray this week, to delight more and more in the Lord Jesus, the one who is perfectly pure and holy and blameless. Help us as we look at these judges in the Old Testament. Help us to be more and more thankful for our Saviour. And therefore, help us to respond in praise and honour of him. Amen. Two songs as we close.